May the 18th, 2014, uh, lecture discussion number 156 uh, on the Book of Romans. And for the Internet people, there will be no lecture on May the 25th. Uh, we will be back on June the 1st, uh, maybe. We'll wait and see how that all works out. Lots of issues happening here, most of which are called uh, nice weather. And so uh, when Alaskans have nice weather, uh, they are unfaithful to church services. It's not. Don't take it personal. But anyway, we will not be here. On the 25th of May, uh, we will be back. We plan to be uh, sometime uh, the first uh, Sunday in June. Okay, we've reached the point, uh, as we do and the way I do these lectures, uh, if you've been paying attention, and many of you do, uh, thank you for all your letters pointing out that I'm eccentric and I'm predictable. What I've always done in my teaching career is I, I go for about four or five lectures and then I revisit everything to make sure that people uh, get the necessary um, information hardened in, if you will, or emphasized. So we've reached that point, and it's uh, advisable, I've found over the years, certainly necessary to reestablish some of the foundational points of the Jacob Esau passages that we've gone through uh, for the sake of salvaging some continuity. This all started, if you remember, uh, uh, because we took off into Romans 9, specifically Romans 9, 12 through 14. It really doesn't start in Romans 9, 12 through 14. It really finishes there, kind of. I, I would make the case, somebody would say, uh, would uh, protest and say it uh, finishes in Hebrews 12. But I, I think, no, um, uh, Hebrews 12 is uh, a reference to an earlier event than Romans 9 is. So I think it does finish in Romans 9, but that doesn't matter. Just remember this for now. Uh, the older shall serve the younger. Jacob I have loved. Esau I have loved less. The word translated hated can uh, have more. You have to get the context out of it. You, you can't assume that it is hated just because uh, somebody says so. You have to look at the context in which it's in. It's in the Leah-Rachel context of Genesis 29, 30 through 35, that word translated uh, hated, and there it clearly is not hated. It is loved less. Leah is loved less than Rachel. So uh, that's why I did it this way. Jacob I have loved. Esau I have loved less. Um, anyway, that explains the context, Genesis 29, 30 through 35, and especially if you put it in concert with Romans 9, 13 and Malachi 1, 2 through 3. Also, if you add in Romans 9, 1 through 3, where Paul starts Romans 9 by telling you, by emphasizing to you, by making sure you cannot overlook what he means, he does tell you that the whole point of Romans 9 is that he is grieving for the nation of Israel. So that's your context. That's how you start. And that's my uh, point about Romans 9, 12 through 14. It does three things. It presents the nation of Israel being served by the nation of Edom. Because Jacob is the nation of Israel. Uh, Esau is the nation of Edom. They are representative. And the nation of Edom will serve the nation of Israel. As opposed to individual. Did Esau ever serve Jacob, no. So clearly, that part of that prophecy by God had to mean the national element or the national context. So the nation of Israel is going to be served by the nation of Edom. So ask, when does that happen, by the way? Has it happened? When does it happen? Clearly, it happens in the millennium. 
Does it happen before that uh, becomes an issue? That's one thing that ha- that we are uh, that Romans nine twelve through fourteen illustrates for us. Uh, the second thing is that Israel is being loved and Esau is being loved less. And next, the progression now reaches its natural conclusion. So I have the serving, then I have the loved and the loved less, and now I have uh, the the natural conclusion. That's in Romans nine fourteen. Is God evil? See, that's the order, right? Let me repeat it. The nation of Israel will be served by the nation of Edom. Israel will be loved. Esau will be loved less. Is God evil? That's your order. That is a natural, logical progression. And, of course, the answer is certainly not. He is not the author of sin. Not. But Paul knew that that question would be asked as he went through Esau and Jacob. And that's how we began, or we, be, we began this, that's how we began, because that's where we started. Um, and, now, and then we went about trying to solve this Jacob-Esau as best we can. And then that comes, um, after we get through Jacob-Esau, where do we have to go next? Because of Romans 9. We have to solve the hardening of Pharaoh. And that's where we have to decide if Pharaoh is hardened, what that means. Does it include being hardened to withstand the plagues? Does that make sense? In other words, how is it that the Pharaoh did not give up after one plague? I made that point a few weeks ago. How is it? Why? What made him hold on? Did God give him the strength to hold on? Is that part of the hardening element that's there? And and as I've said in in previous lecture, the Pharaoh is resolute to the tenth plague. Uh, Is that on his own? Or is there a supernatural... uh, Is God doing something to him that he is predisposed to do himself? I would have given up immediately. I would not have waited for ten plagues, but the Pharaoh does, all the way to the death of the firstborn. And so that has to be explained. How is it that the Pharaoh is resolute all the way to the death of the firstborn? How did this man resist all of this and not quit? And uh, naturally, uh, many have concluded that God intervened and that he hardened Pharaoh and that Pharaoh hardened himself and and that combination accounted for it. But I'm going to tell you that Pharaoh hardening himself seems obviously insufficient and certainly not a a very powerful contributing factor. Certainly it's evidence that he was predisposed, but to withstand that kind of pressure is amazing, especially national pressure. And thus, uh, we will need to address the hardening of Pharaoh in a much more comprehensive way when we get to him this time. And as per usual, it's always more complex an issue than most people assume. And it's certainly got more than one facet to it. And um, it's going to bring a lunch. But for today, I just want you to realize that Pharaoh did something pretty amazing. He held on. Let me put that on, on the board. He holds on, doesn't he? And who's he holding on to? 
Who's he holding on to? He won't let him go. Who is it? It's Israel. For today, I want you to realize that the Pharaoh holds on tightly to who? The firstborn of God. So I have the Pharaoh holding on. I've got to repeat that. Pharaoh held on for nine plagues. He would not give up the firstborn, the beloved of God. That's how God describes the nation of Israel. And you see the typology that is the nation of Israel immediately. I hope you do. Israel goes into the wilderness. Christ goes into the wilderness, right? Israel goes into the wilderness to be tested and they fail. Christ goes into the wilderness to be tested and he is determined to be pure 100% God. So I have this picture of God that is in, a uh, picture of Christ that is in the nation of Israel. And here I have now, I'll notice immediately that Pharaoh is holding on to the beloved, the firstborn of God. And why? What do they want to do? What does God want to do? He wants to go three days and three nights, right? Sign of Jonah. So I have this Christology here. With regard to the Pharaoh, Pharaoh is holding on. And obviously, I'm going to connect that holding on of Israel by the Pharaoh to where? Who else holds on to the firstborn? Jacob does. Genesis 32, 22 through 32. He holds on to Christ and won't let go. Who is Christ? The firstborn. The firstborn. The beloved. The only if you will. And I have the Pharaoh doing the exact same thing. I've got to solve that. I've got to figure out what that means. Obviously, it's more complicated, this Pharaoh guy, than we think. G- Jacob is renamed Israel, Genesis 32, 22-32, by Jesus Christ himself, the angel of the Lord. Christ is called the angel of the Lord, and Jacob is holding on to him. He's holding on to Christ all night. By the way, is the angel of the Lord present at the at the plagues? Absolutely, is certainly he's there at the tenth plague. So Jacob holds on to Christ all night. And again, to re, to repeat that, that should immediately strike you as impossible. How am I going to hold on to God? With my own strength, I can't do that. I don't have the strength. He's going to lose me pretty fast. He's really, really quick. He's not going to have trouble getting loose from me. So if I'm holding on to God, obviously that is God uh, causing that. It's actually God holding on to me. In this case, holding on to Jacob, which means he's holding on to Israel, right? God is telling you in Genesis 32, 22 through 32, that he is holding on to Israel. I'll give Jacob his due. Jacob wants the blessing of God. He seeks the blessing. He wants to be saved. And Genesis 32, 22 through 32 makes that clear. Anyway, I just want for, like again, just to kind of give a synopsis here. Jacob holds on. Pharaoh holds on. Esau does not hold on. At least Esau does not hold on at the stew, the soup thing, right? We have to deal with it. But I noticed that Jacob and Pharaoh hold on, and I'm going to think pretty soon, eventually, i got a, probably a place where Esau holds on. We'll go see. 
So it becomes apparent why the Pharaoh is linked by Paul, the Holy Spirit using Paul. It becomes really obvious, I hope, that why the Pharaoh comes after Jacob and Esau in Romans 9. Because he has this holding on to the firstborn of God, the same thing that is happening with Jacob, in a sense. At least we're going to see the most obvious of the obvious connections, this holding. And by the way, this holding on to stuff is a theme in Scripture, and it's something we'll have to attend to. And then after that now, after Pharaoh comes the potter and the clay, and the potter molding clay into vessels. And it even says beautifully in Romans 9.20, the potter is forming the clay into vessels. So he has the clay, and he forms it into a vessel. And forming is an interesting way to describe what the potter is doing. Uh, and when you add the context of Romans 1, uh, 1 through 3, where Paul is saying, I am grieving for a nation. Now you ask yourself, is he forming individuals or is he forming nations? In Romans 9.20. Okay, so that's a recap of where we've been. Uh, I should quickly add Rebecca a little bit to that. Let me do that because you see Rebecca... Rebecca's motive is a special piece of information. Whenever you talk about um, what's going on with Jacob and Esau, you have to figure out why this mother does what she does. Uh, she plays defense against her husband. Isaac is about to do something, and she's going to defend what he is going to do. She's going to try to parry it and stop it from happening. So she intercedes. Mom does. That's why last Sunday was a Mother's Day lecture, whether you noticed it or not. She takes extraordinary steps to prevent Isaac from blessing Esau. She's going to stop him from doing it. it, it and she has an air of desperation to her, uh, almost a panic. In fact, I'm going to submit that she's in a state of terror and dread. And she is going to stop Isaac no matter what. Now, what could make her do that, this mother? I think that answers it itself. I hope it does for you. Again, I don't have any trouble ever getting mothers to figure out what Rebecca's motive is. She's got two sons and a husband who's about to... Got to be careful with my language. A husband is about to... I can't even come out with it. He's about to really mess this up. But she's stopping him. Now, what would motivate her to stop him? Mothers figure that out very fast. So why? What's her motive? And what is so important, so serious, that explains what Rebecca does? That she's willing to take all kinds of risks to do it. And one of the risks is immediately she knows that if she intercedes here and is successful at stopping Isaac from blessing Esau, whatever Isaac thought he was going to be doing, it doesn't matter. But if she stops Isaac from doing it, what is the potential that this cunning, brutal, killing machine that is Esau is, is, what's the chances that he just cuts Jacob down immediately? Would Rebecca know that Esau is a threat to Jacob? Of course she would. She knows that if something, if, she, if her plan goes through, the first thing Esau is going to do, and the Bible backs it up, the first thought he's going to have is, I'm going to kill Jacob. Does that stop her? No. Does it dissuade her at all? 
I, I believe that she anticipated that response by Esau. She saw it through. It had no impact on her at all. She still goes through with what she's going to do. She couldn't be moved off of her plan. My point is, is whatever your conclusion about Rebecca's motive is, you've got to be consistent with all the, and match all the consequences. And hopefully that makes sense. She knew Esau was going to try to kill Jacob. It was worth it to her. So what's her motive? And, I, and I've said repeatedly that uh, Rebecca's motive and Jacob's motive are the same motive. And what I mean by that is what Jacob does at the Red Soup sell the birthright meeting with Esau. That's the same reason that Rebecca makes the food for Isaac and glues the hair on Jacob and puts Jacob in Esau's priestly robes and his garment. That's the same thing. Both, both have the same motive. Same motive both times. And now it becomes critical that we notice the similarities between Genesis 32.30, Genesis 33.4, Genesis 33.10, and Luke 15.20-22. Let me throw those on the board. I got through the review pretty fast. I'm getting better at this. By the way, I'm almost able to completely rewrite the sermon during the music now. I've got to the point where... Where I've gotten that down. I got enough music today. I got all the way done. I'm pretty, pretty impressed with myself. Some people ask me, well, why do you write it the first place if you're going to rewrite it almost? And I almost do. You, you have to watch me sometime. Why you rewrite it? Well, I remember things that I think I should throw in. Thus answering the question, why are you go on for so long? Okay, Genesis 32.30. Oops, 32, 22 through 30, sorry. Okay. Genesis 33, 4. Genesis 33, 10. Luke 15, um, 20 through 22. That one right there is so important. That is the prodigal son. The prodigal son and the story of Jacob and Esau are, are literally uh, side by side. When Christ talks about the prodigal son, he is the author, the word made flesh. He's the one who writes this Bible. There is no way it is an accident that the same language is used in his parable of the prodigal son and the story the actual literal event of Esau and Jacob. The language is identical. He would know that. By the way, so would the people listening to him. And the Pharisees in Luke 15 knew that they were the older son in that story, and they knew that the, who the younger son is. But both of them have the return of the younger son as the theme, right? When Jacob is coming back to see Esau, that is the return of the younger son. When the prodigal comes back to the father, that is the return of the younger son. And both the younger son is kissed by the face of God, if you will, by the father. And a robe is placed on the younger son. So I have a robe placed on Jacob. I have a robe placed on the prodigal son. Not at the same time, but both of them are kissed. Both of them are wept over, falling on the neck, the eagerness, the running. And it's clear that there is unity between Genesis 33 and Luke 15. Genesis 33, 4 through 5, and Luke 15, 20 through 22. And that's where we ended last week. How do you explain that? How do you explain Esau uh, and Jacob 
being the same as, in one portion of the story, the same as the prodigal son. And my my uh, explanation for it is obviously that what what explains it all is the holding on. It's not an accident that Jacob's name means holding on, the holding oner, if you want to make it silly. Jacob holds on to Esau at birth. I think that Jacob is holding on to Esau at the stew, the soup selling birthright part. I think the blessing that Isaac gives, Jacob has got all the hair glued to him wearing Esau's robes. Rebecca's making the food. That's Jacob holding on again. And then following all of that holding on, Jacob then holds on to Christ himself in Genesis 32, through 30. And now I have Esau holding on to Jacob at Genesis 33, 4 through 5. And that order is not happenstance. As I say all the time, start paying attention to the order of stuff. There is a natural, this, this causes this, this causes that. There's a natural order throughout the Bible. So don't think, pull things out and think they're not related to what came before and what comes after. That's always a mistake. The wrestling with Christ, Jacob wrestling and holding on to Christ is right before Esau runs to Jacob, grabs him, kisses him, falls on his neck and weeps over him and embraces him. The wrestling with Christ comes right before that. There's a reason. They naturally fit together. Okay? So today, people ask me all the time, why do you make lists? Aren't the lectures long enough without you making these long, tedious, onerous, boring, horrible lists? Well, I make lists because I want you to see the list has an order and everything is in perfect sequence. There's never anything out of sequence. And if you find something that's out of sequence, then what what have you found? You found out that you're wrong. You have to figure out why it's not what you think it is. It's it's an opportunity to learn something. But I want you to keep asking why I'm making the list. What's happening here? Why is it placed exactly in this order, exactly here in this point in Scripture? How does it connect to the prodigal son at Luke 15, 20 through 22? And last week we read Genesis 32, 22 through 32. We did it last Sunday, and there's uh, no time to reread it today. Um, uh, so if you missed it, just go ahead and open to Genesis uh, 32, 22 through 32, and my list is going to follow pretty close. Now, I don't recognize your translation um, might be uh, different than mine, um, and I don't, uh, as you know, I don't think uh, my translation has, um, I use the New King James because it's just easier for people to listen to that have never heard Scripture before. Um, but I always compare it to the old King James. There's never a lecture where I don't. But nonetheless, I've conceded a few things in my life, and this might be one. 
Okay, Jacob arose that night. So I got Jacob arose that night. What's the obvious thing that you should notice? When I say Steve arose, is it ever at night? No. Uh, what does he work in the swing shift? He arises that night. So consider that right off the bat. He took his two wives. Took his two wives. Now you know that if you know the story of Jacob, he's he is a relational disaster. Um, and he took his female servants. Out of these women come the nation of Israel, right? And he took his eleven sons. And he does this. If you're following along, he sends them over the river. So he arose at night, takes his wives, takes his female servants, his eleven sons, sends them over the river. It's a tributary leading into the Jordan River. And now it says this to you, Jacob is alone. Remember, the Bible always is going to testify of Jesus Christ, especially in the Old Testament, every single time. So ask questions. Why did he arise at night? Why does it they break it down between his wives, his servants, and his eleven sons? Wives are first, female servants second, eleven sons. He gets them all. He sends them over the river. And now he's alone. Why is he alone? Does he know what he's doing? And then almost immediately, if you look at the text, what comes next? It doesn't even look like it belongs there. What's it say? There is no introduction. It doesn't say he's sitting there alone looking around. It's just, boom, immediately what happens right after that? God-man comes. God-man wrestles with Jacob. And they wrestle all night. And then I, I went A B C D E F G H I. I is when God saw. What do you mean when God saw? God is omniscient. God touched the socket of Jacob's hip. You can call that the wounding, if you will. Some do. I don't have a, an issue with the wounding. The wounding of Jacob. So essentially the story is saying they wrestled all night and then when God saw that Jacob wasn't going, Jacob was still going to keep holding on, he wounds him to break him loose. Now that would be a very shallow interpretation of that. That's probably the most common. 
And then this wonderful part that we're going to address over the next few weeks, God said, and, and I will keep this motif going, let me go. Why would God say, let me go? Who else in Scripture has God said, let me go to? Does God ever say to you, let me go? And Jacob said, I will not. Unless... You saved me. Deliver me. Bless me. All the same. Okay, so what would be the next logical thing God would say? God saw, wounds Jacob, knocks him off. But apparently he's still hanging on because God says, let me go. I will not unless you save me, bless me, deliver me. Same thing. And so the next logical thing that should be said by God himself is, what's your name? I hope that that strikes you as unusual. Is that what you would expect God to say? It's a question, isn't it? Again, who is God? Let's just, he's omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. Does he know his name? And it makes perfect sense, by the way. It's the absolutely most amazing, perfect question in the right, perfect order. The conversation makes complete sense. Let me go. I will not unless you save me. What's your name? Uh, And he answers him. Jacob said. And I hope you can see the conversations. God said, Jacob said, God said, Jacob said. Jacob said, my name is Heel Holder. That's what Jacob means. Let me go. I will not unless you save me. What's your name? Heel holder. God says, Nope. I added the nope. It's not really in there. Nope. Your name now is Israel, which means struggler. With God. And then Jacob says, Tell me your name. And God says, And I just absolutely love this verse. Why? So there is your conversation 
between God, YHVH, or in this case, this is the angel of God, the God-man. This is Christ himself, Yeshua, salvation. Jacob is holding on to salvation. Or let me put it this way. Heel holder is holding on to salvation. Does that make sense? I'm using both their names. Tell me your name. Why? And then R, God blessed him. When God blesses you, blessed him there, it says. When God blesses you, what does that mean? Did you get money? No, that's salvation. The whole thing is about salvation. And then this this fantastic face-to-face theme starts to begin. And then uh, uh, Jacob now, or now he's Israel, right? Struggler. Now limps off, limps across the river. Do I have another one? Oh, and then the muscle. The shrinking muscle. Okay, so there's your beautiful, absolutely fantastic order. Jacob arose that night. He took his two wives. He took his two female servants, his eleven sons. He sends them across the river and he makes sure that he's alone. God-man wrestles with Jacob immediately as soon as he's alone. Boy, wrestling. And the wrestling goes on all night. And then when the break came, the day comes. He wounds Jacob, and then he says to him, let me go. Jacob says back, I will not unless you save me. What's your name? Heel holder. No, it's not. It's now struggler. Tell me your name. Why? Then God saves him. Jacob sees him face to face. He saw God face to face and still was saved face-to-face, and lives. And then Struggler limps over the river and joins the others on the other side. And this muscle-shrinking thing has to be worked out. And hopefully, by listing this passage, listing this all out for you, you're more able to see this beautiful call and response that I've gone over and over and over again to make sure you see it so that you uh, recognize what's going on. And once again, it follows a logical order, as all of Scripture does. Uh, so the obvious question then becomes, why does God ask uh, Jacob his name when he's omniscient? Uh, that's a big duh. He knows Jacob's name. That's a re-duh. Why does he ask then? What is the asking of Jacob's, uh, the heel holder's name? Why is that the perfect question to follow? I will not unless you save me. Or I will not until you save me. Either one would work. That's a very good answer. I will not let you go until you save me. Well, you're not holding on to him in the first place. As I said before, that obviously is is God holding on to us. But notice that Jesus Christ does not identify himself here. He does not say that I am salvation is my name, Proverbs 30. Does not tell his name, and that's a pattern that continues. 
I want you to notice this crossing over theme because crossing over shows up all over the uh, the Bible. Every time Israel, the strugglers with God, that's their name, strugglers with God, the nation of strugglers. Are they still struggling? They're strugglers. By the way, so are each one of us in case you start to feel superior. That would be a mistake. But the strugglers do cross over, and they cross over, by the way, bunches of places. They cross over the Red Sea. It's heaped up. They go through. The Pharaoh does not make it through. Strugglers get to the other side, where they're on, where they're on solid ground, saved by God. So you see this picture of crossing over a, ba- a body of water, whether it's the Red Sea, whether it's Jordan, just judgment and death, uh, descending from Adam is what Jordan means, Jordan River. So they cross over the Jordan River, and it's also heaped up, and they get to the promised land on the other side. So you see the water in almost all these symbol, symbolic places, and in this place as well, is a picture of physical death. Crossing over is a, is a salvation event. And also notice the face-to-face and still live. Which, to rephrase it, face to face and don't die. You are face to face with God and you don't die. Which means you're not judged. Why aren't you judged? And obviously Genesis 32, 22 through 32 is heavy with salvation symbolism. It, I've argued in the past that the only place that is the only equals to Genesis 32 here, this wrestling with God, um, is Genesis 15. Um, uh, Genesis 22, Exodus 12. So I'm saying where the the red heifer and the ram and the goat and the two birds and the lamp and the burning furnace and Abraham sacrificing Isaac and the Passover... Um, those are the only places as examples of salvation being portrayed that are equal or perhaps even more so than Genesis 32. But I think Genesis 32 is amazing. Okay, so there's our order. Now, once we've got our order, we've got to figure out something. Let's imagine that... Um, because everybody watches movies, though not me, because you're not allowed to talk in movies. Well, now that's not true. You can apparently use your cell phone now in movies. More reasons I'll never go to one. I don't like movies, as you know. As soon as the thing comes up and says, please, no talking, I go, well, what, what? What's that? That's my job. But I get bored in movies now. They're all the same. But as in a, here's what, imagine you, this is a movie, and the first thing I show you is the wrestling scene, which is what I've done. Now, that's not going to help you unless you know what caused it. Something caused this, the angel of God, Jesus Christ, coming to Jacob and going through this. Something caused that. We need to know what it is. And then we need to know what results from this. The cause and the result. What caused the wrestling with the angel of God and what results from it. And um, 
And that may seem obvious, but it's going to be necessary to accumulate and compare stuff to make it, to explain it completely. Because who else has a, a wrestling or a conflict with the angel of God? Who else does this where death is on the table? Death is on the table here because he is face to face with the angel of God, with God himself, with Jesus Christ, and he does not die. Who else does that happen to? we got to go get them all. Obviously, it happens to Moses over circumcision, right? He wrestles with He's going to be killed by Christ because as a poor, I have to match Moses with Jacob. I've got to. They're almost the same story. And then who else? I got Joshua. He comes up against the angel of God, uh, Joshua 5, 13 through 15, and Moses at Exodus 4, 24 through 31. Similar. We've got to add Jacob and Moses to Joshua. See what results. We're going to do that in two weeks. But for today, we've got to go to Genesis 32, 9 through 12, because this is what causes this. So let's read that. How am I doing? Doing good. Then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. You see, because Jacob is going back and who's going, who's he going to run into? Esau. So this is what he says. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your father, or to your family, I'm sorry, and I will deal well with you. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. For I've crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children." For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for the multitude. So I have right here a prayer from Jacob that says, listen, I'm about to run into Esau. You know, Esau is, I haven't seen him 20 years, but last time I saw him, he'd kill everything he wanted. That ain't good news for me. And hey, how about this Abrahamic covenant that you promised me? I'm going to be this huge nation, blah, blah, blah. Got all, this guy's going to kill my children. He's going to kill my wives. He's going to kill me. Help! They kind of took a little editorial license there. But look how he says it. God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your family. And I will deal well with you. He says, I am not worthy. I'm not worthy of the mercies. I'm not worthy of the truth. I am not worthy. Deliver me from Esau. Abrahamic covenant promises. There's three phases in that prayer that he makes. Three elements to it. And now after praying this, what does he do? We can't read it. We don't have time. But um, today, but he goes about, Jacob does, actually I shouldn't call him Jacob anymore because that's heel holder. He's not heel holder anymore. So after praying this heel holder who is now struggler, he goes about assembling a present. He's going to make a present for Esau. So struggler knows I've got to come up with a present for Red Harry or Harry Red, whichever way you want to make it. 
And so he gets hundreds of goats and he gets tens of tens of camels and cattle and um, and he puts this mass of what we would see as wealth. And uh, by the way, just uh, let you know this really fast. The word present in the Hebrew here, uh, he's making a present um, like a Christmas present or a birthday present. That's rooted in the word uh, that um, means blessing. So he's assembling a blessing. I would expect this to be about a blessing, right? The whole thing's about a blessing. Everything about Jacob and Esau is about a blessing. And the blessing is something and someone simultaneously. Does that make sense? So whenever you see blessing, you've got to know that's a person as well as what that person does. So Jacob is accumulating, compiling a gift offering. That's a blessing. That's not unexpected, by the way. He's sending it in front. Why is he sending it in front? Because he thinks, i got to appease this angry person who's going to kill me. I have to have an offering. I'll use this language. I have to have an offering and put it in front. Because i got to deal with this angry person who's going to kill me. Hey, so start thinking about that. So the prayer, if you will, causes this wrestling. Now, let's look at 17, verse 17. So he's got his accumulation, his, co- his composition already, and this group of people and uh, animals, and he commanded the first one, saying, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong and where are you going? Who are these in front of you? Then you shall say, They are your servants. Your servant Jacob. So wait a minute. Remember, the older will serve the younger. But Jacob is saying, I am the servant of Esau. Tell him. When he comes, you tell him, they, these, all of this stuff belong to your servant, Jacob. It is a blessing sent to my Lord Esau. See, they, this is all about blessing. It's always been about blessing. Jacob is saying, I am giving you your blessing. I never wanted it. Because I know know it's a person. It's not a sheep. Unless the sheep is the type for the person. Does that make sense? It is a blessing sent to my Lord Esau. And behold... He, Jacob, is also behind us. So he commanded the second and the third and all who followed the drove, saying, In this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And also say, Behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. I can't put enough emphasis on that. That's Jacob's plan. And it's amazing. Yes. It's stuck. Wow, I didn't go. That's um. How about this one? Am I still alive here? Okay, we'll keep going, and that'll be our master, our redundancy. Yes, for those of you on the internet, I have redundancy for my redundancies. So don't bother to send me that joke. I've had it before. For he said, I will appease him with the with the blessing that goes before me. Jacob said, I will appease Esau with the blessing that goes before me. And afterwards, I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. 
So the, so the blessing went on before him, but he himself lodged that night in the camp. Okay, I want you to notice now this, this contrast that's occurring uh, as we're running out of time. This is in uh, chapter 33. Gosh, I, I got time according to my clock, but not according to, to Terithithes. So let me just read it. Now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and there Esau was coming with him with 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. And he put the maidservants with their children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. Then he crossed over before them and bowed himself on the ground seven times. So Jacob is bowing. But Esau ran to meet him, embraced him, held on to him, grabbed him, if you will, fell on his neck, kissed him, and they wept. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children and said, Who are these with you? He didn't care at all about this appeasement, did he? So he said, Jacob said, the children of whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maidservants came near and their children and bowed down. And Leah also came near with her children and they bowed down. Afterwards, Joseph and Rachel came near and they bowed down. A whole lot of bowing going on. I could make a political statement here, but I won't. Then Esau said, What do you mean by all this company which I met? And he said, These are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough. My brother, keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, No, please, if I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand, inasmuch as I have seen your face as though it is the face of God. And, and you were pleased with me. I thought, God, you were going to be angry and kill me. And you didn't. See how I kind of maneuvered that for you? Please take my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. So he urged him and he took it. Then Esau said, let us take our journey. Let us go. I will go before you. Now there's more there. I just cut it off right then. But I just want you quickly to notice as we're shutting down here, the contrast between Jacob and Esau. Twenty years has passed and Jacob comes and he bows down seven times. And Esau doesn't bow down. He runs towards him and embraces him. And Jacob says, I'm your servant. You're my Lord. He keeps doing it over and over again. But not Esau. What does he say back to him? He's my brother. There's a tremendous difference. Jacob comes with caution and humility. He's expecting anger and death. And Esau instead gives him embraces and kisses and love and mercy. And Jacob says, accept the gift. And Esau says, I have enough. Keep what you have. Jacob said, I have seen your face as though I have seen the face of God. You are treating me exactly as God would treat me, is what he's saying. And Esau says, let us go together. I will go before you. Which means what? 
If there's anybody coming, I'm going to take them out. I'm going to protect you. I hope you see the typology of this. It's unmistakable. It's amazing. Uh, Supper Dave and I were talking about, we have a, we have a guy coming. I shouldn't say his name and I won't, but he's coming up here to Alaska and he's going to do a big thing. And all the churches are trying to get behind him. And, I, and they sent me letters. How come you're not being involved with it? And I want to, I've got a real job with a nail gun. It's got my name on it. A paint machine. And I have to do tape and texture of sheetrock. Never admit anywhere, certainly not in public or in any kind of tape taped message that you can do sheetrock, mud tape, texture. <laughs> Don't admit you hang it, either, especially on ceilings and garages. Don't do that. You can't be more foolish. But I didn't write him back, but I wanted to tell him, listen, I'm not involved because I don't want to get sucked into a bunch of, I don't know, weeping, crying nonsense. I want, you, I want to be involved in things where they're explaining that the Bible is magnificent beyond our imagination. There's no possibility a human being could write something like this. And then another human being could come and attach it to Luke 15 in the parable. It's impossible that that could happen unless the author and the person who attaches it is God himself. Thousands of years apart, this perfect symmetry. That's what needs to be preached. Don't make me happy. Don't make me cry. Tell me the truth. But unfortunately, I don't think that's going to happen. I think we're going to make people happy and cry. But the typology here is, is as I said, it's, it's astonishing, it's magnificent. Jacob is giving the blessing to Esau. I mean, we'll get into that next week, but you have to know that the blessing is Jesus Christ. And that has been the motive of Rebekah all along. And the motive of Jacob all along. Jacob is the nation of Israel. The blessing is Jesus Christ. Jacob is the struggler with God. And who is Esau in this story in Genesis 33? I think that that's obvious. I hope it is. If it's not, come and see me afterwards. But that's why Paul put Jacob and Esau in Romans 9. 12 through 14. That's what he's doing. He's put Israel, Jacob, and Esau, Pharaoh, Potter, and the clay. He's got it all worked out. It's in perfect order. It makes fantastic logical sense. And that's why uh, we have to know what it really means because it's powerful when you know the truth.